This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. Since last we spoke, I ventured into the world of acting, performing the role of Peter Morin in a play about Dorothy Day, which was written and directed by one of our parish priests, Father Al Giacomo. While I had some knowledge of Day, I had only passing awareness of Morin, but without Morin's distributist vision, we really wouldn't have the Catholic worker or Dorothy Day, who is now on her way to being canonized, as we now understand her. I need to do more exploration of Marin and Day as part of the early 20th century agrarian and distributist movements that I know primarily from the Vanderbilt agrarians and also G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc. We have much to learn from all of them still. I will not try your patience with further recruitment for our Genoa trip, but to say we have successfully filled up the openings for both of our groups. I am very much looking forward to this first Cultural Debris excursion. Please consider supporting the Cultural Debris Patreon if you enjoy the podcast. Any amount helps. There's a link in show notes. If you could leave a five-star rating and review, it would also be most appreciated. It should only take you a moment. I recently acquired a book I had wanted for some three decades, ever since I read Russell Kirk's praise of it. Donald Davidson's 1938 classic, The Attack on Leviathan. Dr. Kirk brought out a new edition of it in his Transaction series in the early 1990s, which I bought and read at the time. Dr. Kirk wrote how the original edition sold only a few hundred copies before the University of North Carolina Press pulped the rest of its sheets. Friend and patron of the show, Chase Steely, happened upon a copy in Tennessee recently, much to my shock. He then alerted me to another copy for sale that is now safely in my bookcase. It is suddenly raining copies of the attack on Leviathan out there. I'm thrilled to have it. Don't lose patience in those book hunts, dear listeners. Sometimes it just takes a few decades. Our poem is from Thomas Merton and is called Seneca. When the torch is taken and the room is dark, the mute wife, knowing Seneca's ways, listens to night, to rumors all around the house, while her wise lord promenades within his own temple, master and censor overseeing his own ways with his philosophical sconce, policing the streets of this secret Rome, while the wife, silent as a sea, policing nothing, waits in darkness for the night bird's inscrutable cry. My guest is Dr. Greg Hillis of Bellarmine University in Louisville. He is author of the recent book, Man of Dialogue, Thomas Merton's Catholic Vision from Liturgical Press. Dr. Hillis and I discuss Merton's reputation, his role as novice master at the Abbey of Gethsemane, his interaction with the Kentucky literary scene, and the significance of Merton's interest in Eastern religions. Now join me as I talk with Dr. Greg Hillis. Greg Hillis, welcome to Cultural Debris. Thank you. We are at lovely but very warm 
Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. Sitting in your lovely office, there's a Memento Mori skull staring at me over here. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, we've been we've been trying to nail this down for a while, and uh, with various uh, plagues and travel and so forth. End of semester End busyness. End of semester stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I. I don't know why you didn't want to get together in April, but you know, <laughs> you actually were doing some traveling. You were uh, overseas. Yeah, I went over it? to uh, Paris. I went with my 17-year-old to Paris and uh, London. I was doing a book event in London. Oh, and, very nice. And so, figured he'd always wanted to see Paris, so sure. we decided to make it a go. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do a book, you might as well do a book event in London. Yeah, I would, exactly. I would definitely explore the international market on, uh, you know, contacting all the bookstores in exactly. far-flung locales and seeing if I could do events. That would be, uh, that would be a good way to go. So, exactly. uh, you just took me through the Merton Center here uh, at Bellarmine. Tell me a little bit about the Merton Center. Well, it's really the prize, the jewel of Bellarmine University. I think uh, back in the 1960s, Monsignor Horrigan. Um, talked to Merton about making a repository, a sort of archive of Merton's stuff here, and Merton agreed, and so the Merton Reading Room was created, and in 67, I believe, was when the Merton Legacy Trust was officially created, so uh, Bellarmine College, as it was known at the time, became the official repository of Merton's literary estate, and it remains to that uh, to this day. And so it um, contains really everything related to Merton. His manuscripts, um, uh, I believe there are uh, about 20,000 pieces of correspondence uh, wow. to over 2,000 people. Um, there are his um, typescripts, his uh, private journals, his photographs, his um, drawings, really everything associated with Merton. Uh, and so we get scholars from around the world who come here. Sure. It's a beautiful place, lots of uh, lots of things to look at. Yeah. Um, Merton's photographs, photographs of Merton, mm -hmm. artwork by his father, yep. um, and uh, even various uh, pieces of Merton's clothing and so forth, of which there was not a lot. There was uh, not a lot, no. Yeah. And I, I meant to show you, I, I'm, I usually point this out to my students, but on the jean jacket that's on display in the Merton Center, you know, there's a white tag on the left collar, mm -hmm. and his laundry number is on there. It was 127, oh. but there are also two previous laundry numbers on there that have been scratched out. So he was the, uh, it was a hand-me-down oh. from two other monks who had probably died or something. Oh, okay. so. Well, yeah, I guess you, you get used to it. It's, yeah. it's sort of like in-house goodwill or something. It's, well, you know? <laughs> it's what happens when you take a vow of poverty. I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. Uh, but, you know, of course, that's a... If you've seen any photographs of Merton, that's a fairly well-known jacket or commonly He seemed seen to like jacket. denim. Yeah. Well, it was the yeah. 60s. Yeah. If he wasn't wearing a habit, he was wearing denim. Yeah. yeah. So, well, it, it's, it's a great place. The first time I'd seen it, and uh, but it's, it's really uh, a beautiful space, and uh, I, if, if anybody's in Louisville, I would encourage them to come. Is it open pretty much all the time? Uh, Monday through Friday, yeah. pretty much business hours. So. Yeah. Do people have to, I guess you have to schedule an appointment to do work in the reading room or, or if you're going to do research mm -hmm. where you know the director and the, or the assistant director are bringing things out of the archive it's best to get in touch with them right. ahead of time but not absolutely necessary yeah. but there's some nice exhibits I mean it's not a huge space but it's uh, yeah anybody who's interested in Merton I think oh yeah would uh, would definitely find it uh, worth visiting 
So you, uh, you're not from Louisville, I don't think. I am not from <laughs> Louisville. No. How'd you find yourself at Bellarmine? So I was doing, I'm Canadian, I'm from Alberta. And you are, uh, by the way, the, the third Canadian who's got oh, really? a cultural degree, yeah. So we're, I mean, we're it's, taking it's, it getting, over. it's getting out of hand, really. Yeah, well, it's like all of us. We're basically, we're, we're gradually taking over the country, yeah. you know, <laughs> bit by bit. Yeah, the last Canadian yeah. was, was Father Harrison Ayer from uh, way out uh, Oh, yeah, in BC. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so uh, I'm from Alberta, and uh, I did my first degree um, in uh, biblical studies, and then I did a second degree uh, out in Ontario um, at the University of Waterloo in um, history and religious studies, and then I did a master's degree in which I wrote on Augustine um, and a PhD. Uh, this was all at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, PhD on Cyril of Alexandria and his Trinitarian theology. And as I was applying for jobs and uh, the whole uh, rat race of trying to find an academic job, which are not a dime a dozen, uh, I applied for a number of different jobs, but the one that most stuck out to me was the one here at Bellarmine University, largely because I had been really shaped by Merton in my early 20s. Uh, he, uh, The Seven Story Mountain was a book, uh, it's his autobiography, and it's uh, it means something to different people depending on uh, you know what they uh, what kind of station in life they're in but at that time I was wondering what I was going to do with my life and the book is really about questions of vocation and whether he had a calling to something and so at that time I was wondering if I had a calling to something and so reading the Seven Story Mountain was a tremendous comfort to me and I, I started reading everything that I could of his and uh, and uh, as I mentioned in the book, uh, you know, I, I got a tattoo of a drawing that Merton did on my arm, and you know, and when I when I was twenty five, sort of a youthful exuberance, and um, but he was really important to me. So of course I knew about Bellarmine University because of its connection to Merton, and um, so I applied, got an interview. I didn't know if I was going to get the job, so I made sure I spent some time in the Merton Center because I'd never been there before, and. Um, yeah, honestly, it's kind of uh, just fortuitous, I guess one would say providential, that I now teach and work and my office is at a place that's about 50 feet away from everything Merton ever did. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's quite a, quite a resource. And you're not very far, I mean, not too far from uh, Gethsemane. No, I go down there pretty regularly. Yeah. It's about an hour drive, depending on different monks have different shortcuts that they've tried to show me uh, <laughs> and it all it all depends on the shortcut um, are, are monk shortcuts reliable uh they generally are yeah yeah they do all right um but it, you know it all depends on the traffic but yeah i go down there fairly regularly uh, i take my kids down there we uh we go hiking with the monks and um yeah i like it down is there. the is the monastery back open now yeah, it's been open for a while now. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. That's great. Uh, so, I guess so. In in this sort of, uh, I get sometimes called the the Holy Land of Kentucky. Yeah. You uh, you en enjoyed finding yourself here with all the the Merton things around. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, most Kentuckians are a little skeptical of Louisville, but uh, <laughs> you know, we Gethsemane we're a little more accepting of, I guess. But. Yeah. You've written a new book. Uh, called Man of Dialogue, Thomas Burton's Catholic Vision. The title uh, is uh, 
of note? Where, where did you where did you pick the title? Of? Who who named the book for you? <laughs> <in essence? laughs> well, in September 2015, um, the uh, Pope came to the United States, and uh, what ended up happening was that he mentioned Merton as one of four uh, noteworthy Americans in his speech to the U.S. Congress, and he referred to Merton as uh, a man of dialogue. And so that's, yeah, that's where the title comes from. So Merton's inclusion by Pope Francis was, was kind of a switch from official Catholicdom uh, because he had been excluded from the earlier American Catechism. Uh, not, not just excluded, but I guess booted out. So there was a, a, a special version of the Catechism that the U.S. bishops wanted to put out and that uh, edition included stories of prominent Americans generally. There were some non-Americans also in there um, who were sort of examples of the faith, so Dorothy Day's in there, uh, various other f uh, figures. Um, and Merton was originally in there. And then there was um, a number of people who were critical of that, um, and you can find uh, evidence of the criticism online still. And uh, then Bishop Donald Worrell, who then became Cardinal Worrell, but he was at this point Bishop of Pittsburgh, I believe. He um, he finally made the decision to take Merton out. And when asked, he said, "Well, we don't know all the details of the end of his life." So there's he was sort of insinuating, anyways, that Merton maybe had become a Buddhist or something, right, yeah. and therefore he was uh, uh, not to be included. Um, it's interesting to note that Cardinal Worrell was in the uh, in the building and in the audience listening to Merton being proclaimed by Pope Francis at the U.S. Congress. Quite a rehabilitation. Uh, yes. Within a fairly short period of time, really. Yes. Um, so your book is, uh, and you can you can correct my my reading of this, but it's in some ways a defense of Merton. On, against those kinds of attacks? So there are two different questions. Well, it's the same question asked by two different groups of people. On the one hand, you have you know, Catholics who are more on the traditionalist end of things, who really worry about Merton, um, particularly his interreligious dialogue, uh, his, his exploration of Asian religions, um, these sorts of things, who really wonder about how Catholic he was. So they will often ask me, either online or in person, they'll say, well, you know, how Catholic was he? And then on the other spectrum, you have those who are, um, I guess one could call them, you know, more politically progressive, who like what Merton had to say about war and on various social issues and his interreligious dialogue, but who don't like that he was Catholic. <laughs> and they'll say, well, he wasn't really Catholic, was he? <laughs> And so it's, it's really the book is about exploring how deeply Catholic he was and how well you can, uh, that, that doesn't mean you have to agree with everything uh, that he did or said, but he was doing, everything he did was not uh, as a way to accommodate himself to the world or to sort of um, dumb down his Catholicism. It actually was rooted in his own understanding of Catholicism and of the tradition. You know, you talk about, um, mentioned sort of the rehabilitation and criticism from different ends of the spectrum, but you know, even in recent years, Bishop Barron's mm -hmm. said quite a bit uh, about Merton and mm -hmm. featured him 
in his Catholicism series. He uh, did. And uh, has talked, well, different times about the impact of Seven Story Mountain on him and so mm -hmm. forth. So, um, so it, there, do, there seems to be, I guess, growing appreciation or reassessment or willingness to, I guess, come to Merton's defense. Because um, that's, you know, that's not something Bishop Barron would have to focus on if he didn't want to make a point of it. I mean, clearly he seems to be, so. Um, and he was actually, Merton was actually also cited in um, Cardinal Seurat's book on silence as well. Mm -hmm. uh, he, <coughs> he cites Merton on uh, Merton's New Seeds of Contemplation, uh, quotes him uh, pretty regularly. So, you know, uh, among uh, many Catholics, uh, including those who, you know, we could maybe label, I do not like labeling, right? But uh, those who are, who, yes, <laughs> yes, those who are perceived as being more on the conservative end of things um, have an appreciation for Merton and, uh, and we'll, we'll talk about him. Um, but oftentimes they'll pick on, pick things like his writings on silence or prayer or something and then not really look at his later stuff. And that's part of what the book is about, is, is about trying to illustrate that, well, uh, you know, you may not like his interreligious dialogue or his focus on peace and his criticism of, of American foreign policy, these sorts of things, but um, you have to grapple with them theologically because that was the basis on which he made those arguments. Well, I, I think as as anyone is, we are we are men of our time. Yes, know, and that was the time Merton has. That those were the issues he was dealing with. And, yeah. Um, so, I mean, to a degree, that's not his fault. <laughs> that that's what that, that that's what was there. But you you even acknowledge in the book though that that there are kind of two periods of Merton's life. There's sort of this early, uh, more inwardly focused period. Um, I guess we might say more monastic, mm -hmm. um, and then somewhat more of an outwardly focused. I mean, those are those are difficult in some ways to draw though, because Merton, on the on the one hand, was always outwardly focused because he was constantly writing, mm -hmm. publishing books throughout all of this period, mm -hmm. and then even in sort of the outwardly focused period, that was the period where he actually became a hermit mm -hmm. and m moved to the Hermitage and so mm -hmm. forth. So he was. Sort of fighting extremes there. On the one hand, was attempting to embrace seclusion, while at the same time being addressing more contemporary issues. Maybe he had two different understandings of the world. So when he became a monk, he became a monk as a way to, uh, partially, anyways, to escape the world. So if you read the Seven Story Mountain he talks in very negative terms about the world and wants to escape it and when he writes in his journals about the world really right up until the mid-1950s he's writing about the world as this thing that's pernicious and evil that the walls of the cloister are sort of protecting him from and by the late 1950s he is displaying a much different attitude towards the world. Now, that doesn't mean that he thinks that it's all roses and good. I mean, in fact, the, th the very things that he addresses are the things that are most problematic in his time. Um, racism, uh, the very real threat of nuclear annihilation, um, 
these sorts of things. Um, but he comes to realize that, in fact, far from being separated from the world by the walls of the cloister, somewhat ironically, um, by separating himself from the world, he's actually become more united to the people in the world. That is, that his solitude is actually not just his solitude, but the solitude of everybody else, and that he owes it to the world to bring to the world the kind of insights that he feels he can bring as a, as a contemplative monk in a world that really didn't and doesn't give much credence to contemplation. I mean, going back to, to I guess, the beginning with Merton, Seven Story Mountain was an extraordinarily popular book. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was, Merton was quite well known. Uh, Sold 600,000 copies yeah. in the first year, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, what author wouldn't like those numbers? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and, I, you know, I'm sure there are figures on how many it sold since, but I'm sure a it's lot. It's in the millions. Yeah, it's I'm never sure it's, it's never gone out of print. But, um, you know, he was quite young and knew, uh, a relatively new monk and was known all over the world, really, mm -hmm. uh, with, with, this, with this book. So, I mean, it's, I guess there's always that tension mm -hmm. of, his popularity, publishing books, maintaining uh, friendship with James Laughlin mm -hmm. uh, at New Directions, and uh, bringing out, well, he was really highly prolific. I mean, not just the his personal writings, journals, and so forth, but actual published, published works. Yeah, I mean, uh, I still am confused about how, even as a monk, he found the time to do all that because his monastic schedule was actually a lot busier than the monastic schedule that the monks currently have. Um, they would spend much more time in prayer in church, uh, in the offices. Um, uh, they, In addition to the solemn mass, they had private masses uh, that he would celebrate uh, as a priest. So it's remarkable how much that he wrote. And, yeah. and he had the job as novice master. And he was novice master for which, 10 years. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, he's essentially running a school, he's, basically. And yeah, because he meets with them, he met with them individually for spiritual direction as well as daily for classes. So one of the things that, um, and I, I guess I had known some of these were recorded, but you mentioned in the book that hundreds of hours of his mm -hmm. lectures are recorded. Are those available to listen to? They are. There are some that you can buy. Uh, that some enterprising company has purchased the rights to some of the audio, but most of the audio has not uh, been released. That would be, so be a great podcast series. It would be a great <laughs> podcast series. I've actually thought about that myself. But um, the Merton Center has all the recordings. What's amazing is, is that the recordings generally start around 1962, so he'd been novice master since 55. So. It was, he had, he had been teaching already for seven years by well, the time. He got, he got the lectures polished up at that point. He does, <laughs> and um, they're wonderful to listen to. Uh, I, I'm actually working on a project right now where I'm listening to the first five to ten minutes of these classes because they are um, wonderful. They're, it's before he gets into the subject matter that he's going to be dealing with, and so he's just making various announcements. Mm. And the, the bane of all speakers, you have to make the announcements. But the, but he <laughs> he clearly enjoyed them. Yeah. And so he would. It would be this time where and these announcements were lovely. They were about people who'd asked for prayer, mm. or they were. He would inform the novices about what's going on in the world, um, because you have to remember they didn't know what was going on in the right. world. 
Um, they couldn't check their Twitter. Account. They could not check their. You know, <laughs> th there was no e internet. Uh, uh, I don't believe they had newspapers uh, or magazines at the time. Um, and Gethsemane's a little out of the way. <laughs> it's fairly out of the way. What's fascinating, you know, Merton was able to know what was going on in the world because he had so many correspondents right. uh, who would send him magazines. And he also would come into town pretty regularly for doctor's appointments. And he would usually go to the public library here in Louisville, or he would go to the University of Kentucky Library when he would be in Lexington. And then he would catch up on the various, you know, news and everything that was going on. Uh, so he, you know, the, the, but those announcements—it's when he's really jovial with these students. They, they clearly like him. Uh, he clearly likes them. And um, I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing with that project right now, <laughs> but uh, I think uh, I, I'm enjoying listening to those first oh, ten minutes yeah. or so. Yeah. I, I imagine so. Yeah, it would be interesting to. Um, Kind of to enter that world, that's a, it's a lost world in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, and it's it's fun for me to listen to. I like listening to them, particularly with good headphones, because you can hear the birds in the background. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you can hear the bells ringing. Who was recording it? They uh, brother Paul Quenin, who's still a monk at the Gethsemane. He was actually in charge of recording a lot of them. Um, so they had a little setup as a tape recorder and then a microphone. And um, so you don't always pick up everything that the novices are saying, but you pick up everything that Merton is saying. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Well, that's a that's a tremendous resource. I uh, I hope that uh, that more of those become available as, yeah. as time goes on. So you go through in your book ad addressing different issues surrounding Merton. You talk about his conversion mm -hmm. and going through Seven Story Mountain. Uh, and uh, as we said, the, sort of the purpose of this is to, I guess, for lack of a better term, defend Merton's Catholicity. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you talk about his his devotion uh, to uh, as a priest to the Eucharist and to Mass, his Marian devotions. Um, I mean, these are clearly things he took very seriously, and. Um, one of, of course, one of the interesting chapters, I'm sure one of the chapters that would be most interesting to most people, is your discussion of his thoughts about the liturgies, mm -hmm. uh, and the because this was during the liturgical changes. What did Merton think about the, the liturgical changes that followed Vatican II? So he was really devoted to his identity as a priest, and uh, when he became a priest, it was, you know, the realization of a dream. Um, really the sense of that he had attained his calling, you know. Um, and you have to remember then from 1949 uh, until the, his death in 1968, he said the Mass daily and um, really cultivated a profound, he had already cultivated this, but he had cultivated a profound Eucharistic devotion um, that, that shaped him in many, many ways. Uh, at first, he was really interested in the liturgical changes that he saw coming from Vatican II. So, uh, we're just talking about these recordings down at the uh, that 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 of his talks that he gave to the novices. Well, there are three recordings of him giving lectures on Sacrosanctum Concilium, the document on the liturgy that came out of Vatican II. Uh, one of the interesting tidbits about 
that those recordings is that you can hear Merton shuffling uh, paper as he's talking about this. Well, he was uh, his text was actually the New York Times, which had published the entirety of Sacrosanctum Concilium when it was released. Which is hard to imagine. Right. <laughs> so he somebody had sent him the New York Times, and it had the whole of the document um, uh, in the the edition. The edition. And so he's going through the New York Times, pointing out different paragraphs that he thought were important that the novices should have. And what he really liked uh, about Sacrosanctum Concilium was its uh, focus on trying to change the spirit of the liturgy. Um, so he was really enthusiastic about more participation. Um, he was enthusiastic about um, the uh, uh, the the possibilities of incorporating the laity more thoroughly into the liturgy. I don't think he foresaw. I know that he didn't foresee the wide scale adoption of the vernacular, and that was not something that he was very in favor of. Um, he was uh, in love with the Latin. Uh, he loved the. Um, the beauty of the liturgy whenever he described his conversion he would always go back to the mass that he went to at Corpus Christi which he describes in the Seven Story Mountain and that was his ideal of what the liturgy should look like um, and so when he saw the kind of experimentation that was going on um, he really wasn't all that in favor of it and he really felt in particular that Gethsemane as every uh, as the churches uh, as parishes around the country and around the world were adopting, uh, parishes and dioceses were adopting the vernacular, he said it's our job as monks to preserve the Latin then. And then that went, that went away. So he would get quite prickly about the liturgy. And Brother Paul Quenin told me a story one time when it was at the Good Friday um, Mass and, um, uh, or the Good Friday service, and they were reading the Passion um, as we do as Catholics. And this was the first year that it was being read in English. Mm. And um, uh, Merton apparently just detested the translation that was being <laughs> used. And so he actually got up and left. Um, he didn't stay. Uh, he just couldn't handle it. So, yeah, you know, this here's this guy who, you know, oftentimes people are see as this quote-unquote progressive Catholic who has very... Um, traditionalist liturgical um, uh, leanings. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, in 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 your book, it, it clearly, I guess, Mer Merton's more, much more complicated mm. than trying to pigeonhole him mm -hmm. on, on these on these different issues. And in some ways, you know, we were talking when in, when we were looking uh, looking at his different the books that he had. At the at, in the Merton Center, there is a display of the books that he had marginalia in from the uh, from Gethsemane, and you were pointing out just the diversity, not just the types of books, but in languages of books, and just this really incredible mind that he had, and he wrote so much. In a way, you can Merton's kind of one of those guys that you can, if you want to cherry pick, you can probably find him on both sides of almost any issue. And I, it seems like maybe that that's one of the things Merton's been a victim of. 
Yeah, to some de- to some degree. I mean, people can definitely uh, cherry pick him. I, I like he gives himself a description. Uh, it's the only time where he really identifies himself and labels himself is in conjectures of a guilty bystander, and it's when he's talking about the Second Vatican Council and about the what he sees as being the uh, chasm that was then opening between progressives and conservatives, and those are the words he uses, progressives and conservatives in the wake of the council, which we see this happening. Right. And, um, and he def- uh, defines himself, one says maybe he's hedging his bets, but I actually believe him. He says, I'm a progressive with a love of tradition. And um, I think that's a complicated enough descriptor that it probably does him justice. Right. Well, and I'm, obviously he was wrestling with those things himself. What mm-hmm. what should work, what shouldn't work, and yeah. what won't work. And from from the critiques that he gives of some of the um, some of the liturgical reforms, or at least how they were being carried out, you know, he was right in a lot of his predictions of. Uh, he was very concerned about things being trite mm-hmm. and uh, overly simplistic and so mm-hmm. forth. And the the 20 years that followed kind of bore him out on some of that, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. Uh, you have a chapter about this, but it seems like that his role as novice master had to be a very defining role for him because that, it's something that... He did for, what, 10 years, 12 years? 10 years. Yeah. He was 10 years as novice master, and then he spent uh, at least two years as master of scholastics. So he, would te- he was teaching the, the ordained uh, already who were in the, in the monastery. I mean, that's, that's something, and as you point out in the book, that it, clearly from the lectures he spent a tremendous amount of time preparing, though these were not superficial lessons. Um, You've got to be pretty devoted to be able to do that in a in in a sustained way and in a, an authentic way. I think. I mean, that's the sort of thing that if you're kind of going through the motions, these novices are gonna are gonna figure that out pretty quick. He prepared far more for his classes than he had time for, and then the novices all noted that. Um, so he would actually give them his notes at the end of a particular class, whether it's on uh, the history of Christian mysticism or whether it's on patristic um, theology. Anything he would he would provide them with that background. What's interesting is is that he doesn't he didn't have a theological education. So he his degrees were in English literature. He wrote, he's writing on Gerard Manley Hopkins and. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and and other poets, right? Um, he he didn't have a theological education, so he gave himself one. Um, he read voraciously, and uh, if you look at, I mean, your podcast listeners aren't going to be able to see that, but all those uh, all those uh, books there with the black uh, spine and then the red at the top, those are his notes for the novices. I mean, they're up to twelve volumes now. There's only nine volumes there, but they're up to twelve volumes wow. now. And um, they are uh, largely the study that he was doing for them was in the original languages. So when he was studying the Greek fathers, he was studying them in Greek or at least in a Latin translation. 
Um, he was reading the Latin Fathers in Latin. Uh, he was reading the, the Spanish mystics in Spanish. Um, he was able to give them the, this kind of direct access to these thinkers that very, very few people as teachers would be able to do. And it's really quite remarkable, the breadth of his knowledge. Um, and one of the things I point out in that chapter is that, um, you know, he was very devoted to the fathers. He was very interested in patristic theology, but he was also deeply interested in the thought of Thomas Aquinas. And uh, the, those notes demonstrate just how thoroughly acquainted he was with his theology. I mean, he's really, a, uh, like I said, a self-taught theologian. Yeah, the first, uh, my first ever conscious exposure to Merton was as an undergrad at UK many years ago now. But I had a class where, uh, in which a teacher used Merton's book on the Desert Fathers. Oh, yeah. And so that was the, the first time I had ever, mm -hmm. here I have uh, this person named Thomas Burton who put this together. So that was, um, but, you know, that was a book that was still, I guess, I'm sure it's still used uh, in some classes oh, yeah. somewhere, <laughs> but uh, um, but that was you know that was him delving into um, you know to some degree somewhat obscure writers. Um, he saw the Desert Fathers gave him two things. One was it helped to clarify his own vocation. So the Desert Fathers, many of whom uh, that are quoted in that book, are fathers that are immediately after Constantine, you know, really at the very origins of the, the, the desert monastic movement. And he saw that they um, had a prophetic voice, right? So in a society that uh, had become quote-unquote Christian, but from the desert father's perspective had become less Christian, right? Uh, or, or that, that had watered down Christianity to some degree. Uh, the Desert Fathers provided a prophetic voice about what Christians were called to. And that helped him understand a little bit of what his vocation was then in the world um, to a society that called itself Christian, but he didn't think was acting Christian. Mm -hmm. um, but he also saw in the Desert Fathers um, a correlation with the kind of monasticism that was practiced in Zen Buddhism. And so it was the wisdom of the fathers, that book the, that he wrote on the Desert Fathers, uh, it was out of writing that that he ended up write, end, entering into a correspondence with a Zen Buddhist named D.T. Suzuki, who um, also saw in the Desert Fathers some correlations with Zen Buddhism. So it, it helped him understand his own identity, but also led him into interreligious dialogue. Well, hold that thought yeah. about than Buddhist because we're going to talk sure. about that um, here in a moment. I have to give a, a plug to uh, Victor Homer who makes a mm -hmm. who makes a, a cameo in your book, and uh, so Victor Homer, uh, not a super famous figure <laughs> at this point, uh, but Victor Homer was an Austrian uh, artist and typographer and printer who ended up living in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, was an uh, artist in residence at Transylvania for a time and then um, remained in Lexington till the end of his life. But he became friends with Merton and Merton named one of his, one of his uh, 
pieces of, of art uh, that he was working on. You want to you tell you tell the story in the in the book. So Merton went went into went to Lexington and visited with uh, Victor and it's Carolyn. Yeah, um, Carolyn. Yeah. Uh, and there was a piece that uh, Victor was working on of a uh, a woman um, with a child, and uh, they enter into it, Merton and and uh, Hammer entered into a discussion about it, and uh, Merton said, "I know who that is." And, uh, you know, Victor said, who? And he said, that is Hagia Sophia, that is holy wisdom, right? Well, uh, this holy wisdom is an important figure in the history of Christianity. Uh, there's references to holy wisdom, that is Sophia in Proverbs 8, um, in the uh, 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 other texts in the Hebrew scriptures, as well as in the um, uh, parts of the um, um, the uh, apocrypha that it, that are included in Catholic Bibles, but not in Protestant Bibles. Um, but this wisdom figure was generally associated throughout Christian history with the figure of Jesus, um, and and Merton certainly associates this wisdom figure with Jesus. But Homer's painting led Merton to write a poem called Hagia Sophia, um, which ends up being not only a discussion of God. Um, uh, as Hagia Sophia, not only discussion of Jesus Christ as Hagia Sophia, but of the Virgin Mary as Hagia Sophia, and so it's it's one of the more theologically dense um, poems, and I believe uh, Homer ended up doing a special printing of it. Yes, I'm pretty sure he did. I think that's right. Um, Homer was. And of course, he was also a typeface designer, yeah. most famous for the Homer Unseal typeface. There were some others. Uh, American Unseal, he did a Homer Unseal earlier. Um, but when he did, when he um, did his lawyer press printing, they, they tended to be extremely limited editions. Yeah. I mean, he would just print far fewer than one wishes he had. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, but he printed um, Merton various times, mm -hmm. um, and uh, if anybody ever gets a chance to see some of some of Homer's printing work, um, it's they're they're really they're really extraordinarily beautiful. It's book arts for sure. I um, believe that the printing of Hagia Sophia also included a woodcut. I think that's right of yeah. the painting itself. He did yeah. a woodcut, uh, and there's also a painting of the. Essentially the same scene, but yes. more elaborate. Yeah. Um, I don't know which one he was working on when when uh, uh, Merton saw it, but it was uh, the painting. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there there are multiple versions which Palmer tended to do. Uh, he would have themes that he liked, and he yeah. would revisit them. He did um, at least four four or five versions during his painting career, um, artistic career of. Um, of the uh, woman caught in adultery, right? There are various versions of that, which was clearly something that he mm -hmm. he kept coming back to in, in his mind. But um, Homer's an, an interesting figure. We'll not get too far afield on that <laughs> uh, because I could talk a long time about him. But um, you know, for me, my like I, I said, my my first introduction to Merton, and that was you know tangential because I didn't really 
pursue who Merton was necessarily from that, but uh, but I had a vague idea of, of kind of his existence. Um, but then uh, my really first awareness of him was through his ties to kind of that Lexington literary artistic set. Um, guys like Homer, uh, Gene Meatyard, who mm -hmm. was a photographer, um, and uh, I believe he was also friends with Guy Davenport, mm -hmm. um, who was a professor at the University of Kentucky, was still a professor when I was at UK. I never had him for a class, uh, although my cousin did, but uh, Davenport was one of those figures that I always found extraordinarily intimidating, mm -hmm. so I, <laughs> he was, uh, uh, was a MacArthur genius oh, and yeah. so forth. So. Um, of course, that was uh, well before that that he was friends with Merton. But um, and then, of course, there's the f famous meet your uh, photograph of uh, Wendell Berry yeah. with Merton and Denise Levertov uh, mm -hmm. visited with him. And I think that's the only time that they actually that's met. That's right. Yeah. But um, Merton had a lot of. I mean, for for somebody who's in a monastery, he had a lot of. Kentucky ties, and I, you know, and I'm not really familiar with his ties in Louisville, with which I know there there were many, but uh, he certainly had a lot of ties, and apparently visited Lexington all along, mm -hmm. uh, and the people in Lexington visited him all along. So he was he was part of that scene. So there's a there's there's a sense in which Merton became, although he was obviously. A, a very cosmopolitan monk. Mm -hmm. uh, he was also very locally focused in a lot of ways too. I consider him a Kentucky author. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, he uh, he spent twenty seven years of his life here. Um, it was the majority of his life, uh, just barely a majority, mm -hmm. but the majority of his life. And he, yeah, became thoroughly shaped by the by the place. Mm -hmm. Not just the geography, but by the people. Yeah, I um, probably a somewhat un uh, unexplored area, or at least to the degree it, it could be. But um, but he had a lot of impact um, with people like Homer and people mm -hmm. people like Meatyard, who amplified him through their own work, through their printing. Meatyard, uh, who of course was a well-known avant-garde photographer um, in Lexington, and uh, there's a book or two of his photographs of, of Burton. Mm -hmm. A lot of Meatyard stuff is pretty out there. It is. <laughs> I just went to a, a, a showing of his at uh, uh, of his work at the Speed Art Museum oh, here okay, in Louisville. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's good. Not all of it is to my taste. Yeah. Um, but uh, but a lot of it I really like. Mm -hmm. um, typically, the stuff that he did with with uh, Merton I find I find interesting and intriguing. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, um, has sort of a ethereal quality to it. To it, a lot of times the photographs are somewhat out of focus or um, exposed differently to kind of give a, a different. Uh, he he played around with yeah. a, with a, a lot of things. He was not. Uh, he was not just doing sort of your time life photography no, he kind of kind of thing, but uh, and of course, um, Meatyard also was was very closely um, at, at later tied to Wendell Berry. Did uh, did his 
the book on the Red River Gorge. Uh, yeah, with, that was the uh, that was the show that I saw at Speed. Yeah, and that's beautiful, um, beautiful work, uh, which essentially saved the Red River Gorge from being flooded. Hmm. It was they went to kind of document what the Red River Gorge was because they were getting ready. The plan was to build a dam and flood the Red River Gorge. Right. And um, in large part because of that book, uh, which was published by University of Kentucky Press at the time, around 70, 71, something like that, um, they, they didn't. Wow. And so you can, so the, the reason you can go to the Red River Gorge uh, today is, uh, is because, uh, it, because, at least to some degree, to, because of that book. But um, yeah, but Burton was, was, very tied into that, and but but people, but he was kind of, um, I guess people would make pilgrimages to see him. Um, Denise Levertov was uh, one, obviously not a Kentuckian, mm -hmm. uh, but she came down. Uh, you mentioned Joan Baez coming Joan to see Baez, him and yeah. uh, uh, offering to drive him to Cincinnati. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it. It's uh, you don't really think about Joan Baez running around the the back roads of Nelson County, Kentucky, but, no. uh, but she came so. here when I first got to Bellarmine in two thousand eight uh, because she was doing a show here in Louisville, and she came to the Merton Center. I, n I didn't meet her, but she came to the Merton Center to listen to him, to listen to his voice hmm. uh, while she was in Louisville. Interesting. I will say, you know, the the other connection. We've talked about Hummer, and uh, one of the most beautiful journal entries from Merton, uh, from his private journals, is the day that he, uh, that Victor Hummer died, and um, it's one of the only places in the journal I find where Merton really wrestles with uh, death, um, because he was, he was uh, deeply impacted by Hummer's uh, passing. It bothered him tremendously that this person who was once here was no more. Mm -hmm. And he really had to grapple with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and of course, Hammer was, um, also had a connection to Jacques Maritain, who, yeah. who Merton was also friends with. And, yeah. Um, it's, it's always interesting when you start delving into this stuff, how everybody knew everybody. Right? I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and Merton seemed to know everybody, which, you know, or at least had written letters to people and, it's, uh, I'm, I've grown not to be surprised when I find out that somebody has a connection to him. Right. Yeah, I, um, I, of course, I've uh, worked for Russell Kirk years ago, and obviously he operated in a very different uh, setting than Merton, mm -hmm. but I was always amazed. Uh, he was friends with T.S. Eliot, and, right. you know, and uh, people would come up and, oh, yes, you know, I, we, we toured Scotland together in the 50s or whatever, yeah. you know. So, um, yeah, these, these sort of literary giants would, uh, I guess they, they they don't live like the rest of us. No. <laughs> like the rest of us do. So uh, let's let's for, fast forward or slow forward, as the case may be at this point, but uh, towards the end of the book, which is sort of the controversial part of the book, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, and there are two events for which Merton receives criticism. Um, one, I guess, universal criticism and the other mixed. Um, one, of course, is the is the relationship that he had with the nurse that he met after he had had surgery in mm -hmm. Louisville, um, which no one defends and Merton did not defend, mm -hmm. uh, as you bring out. 
But in your chapter, um, you know, and it's obviously not Merton's finest hour, um, as he himself acknowledged, but one of the criticisms, and you quote from the Gary Wills uh, piece, um, of basically accusing Merton of being sort of a, having a superficial um, appreciation for his vows and role and so forth. And you seek to demonstrate that that's not, was not actually true. Not, not that Merton uh, didn't do the things that his journals obviously talk about him doing, being involved with this, uh, with this nurse, but that it was something that was, that he recognized was a failure on his part and, and really struggled with and, and condemned in himself. Absolutely. Uh, I didn't want to defend because I don't think it merits defending, you know, this relationship. Uh, I think there are a lot of problems with it, not the least being that he was a man in um, power uh, who was well known having an affair with a woman who's half his age, which is uh, problematic on all kinds of levels. So I, I wrestled with that um, and, and really did my homework to make sure that this really was a truly reciprocal relationship um, because there is, you know, we're, we live in an age where we've had to question that a lot now, whether uh, these kind of relationships really were on the up and up. Not that this was on the up and up, but you know, it weren't sure. even worse, right? <laughs> right? Um, but it, it seemed to be, and, and by all the research uh, that I could do, and uh, particularly friends uh, of both of them, this was an entirely reciprocal relationship where they just fell in love with each other um, without intending to, right? There, there was no malicious intent here. Uh, uh, that Merton had to go into the into the hospital and hit on the nurses. They just kind of fell in love with each other, and Merton really had no idea what to do. His journals are embarrassing at this particular time. Yeah, some time. of the, the quotations you have are are really a little hard to read. Oh, they're terrible. And <laughs> the, yeah, um, but as you point out, this was really uncharted territory. For Burton in a lot of ways, and he's been—I yeah. mean, as cosmopolitan as he was, he was also cloistered. Yeah, he had no relationships with with women that were anything other than um, just conquests, right? Uh, Pri that's and that's prior prior, prior to, to becoming becoming a monk. monk. Yeah. So he had no—he'd never really experienced love for or from a woman. Ever and he didn't have a good relationship with his mother. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to be an well, amateur psychologist, well, right? But, yeah. but I mean, even there, he he was not somebody who had experience with healthy relationships in those regards. So that's women. not excusing yeah. that, but it's just the point being that when this happened, he was somewhat blindsided yeah. by it. He was, and so in the in the journals themselves, he, you know, he really seriously has no idea what to do and. It, it, it's um, at one point he says, "Well, I can also be a hermit and love her. You know, I can figure this out," which is clearly nonsensical. Right. And when he goes back and reads through those journal entries again, I mean, he is just as embarrassed by them as as we are, if not more. Um, but what I think is, I mean, the the relationship ends up 
ending. And Merton knew that it was always going to end. He was never going to choose to get married. Uh, he was always going to choose the monastic life. He knew that that was the life he was called to. Um, uh, but it ended when the abbot found out about it. And what I find instructive here, you know, when people condemn Merton on this, is uh, I think it's instructive to look at the abbot's reaction. This was not, they, they were very close, well, okay, they argued a lot. Merton and the abbot argued a lot. They had different visions of, of the monastic life. At the same time, the abbot trusted him with the formation of novices. That was the most important job in the monastery, apart from the abbot. And uh, Merton was also the abbot's confessor. And, uh, and so it, it's clear that the abbot trusted him uh, tremendously. When the abbot found out, he was not surprised, um, nor was he condemning. He recognized that, that Merton had simply fallen in the way that many people fall and simply said to him, it just has to end. There's no punishment, you know, it, it was just, it has to end. And Merton um, ended the relationship uh, reluctantly and over time and certainly took more time than the abbot maybe would have said that he should, but, uh, but he did. And uh, the other thing that I think needs to be kept in mind, again, not defending Merton, but um, he knew that his journals were going to be published. And uh, he could have ripped those pages out, um, and he didn't, and he very intentionally didn't, um, and wrote entries about how, why he wasn't going, to be, uh, wasn't going to do that. He said if he was going to be known, he was going to be known for his fault as well as for whatever good he had done in the world. And then the other, and you touched on this earlier, uh, the other criticism, of course, is Merton's interest in other religions, particularly Eastern religions and Buddhism, uh, that kind of resulted through this dialogue. You, you do talk about his correspondence with with a, a Muslim mystic. Yes. Although there doesn't seem to be that same, I guess, concern that, that Merton was going to become a Muslim. No. <laughs> but he did uh, take this this uh, travel, this, I guess, pilgrimage. I don't know if pilgrimage is the right no, I word. I think pilgrimage is the right word. Um, he travels to the, to the uh, east, to observe uh, monastic life from Buddhists. And, and of course, prior to that, had developed friendships, uh, particularly with D.T. Uh, Suzuki. Um, he uh, has an encounter with the Dalai Lama at least once. Three least times. Three times, okay. Um, and so, clearly, Merton had um, a real interest there. He travels to observe all of this. And then, of course, he has this uh, mystical experience that he relates while he is, I guess, meditating in front of mm -hmm. this Buddha statue. So uh, some have concluded that, that Merton converts to mm -hmm. Buddhism at this point. Um, what do you say to that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, Merton... Uh, really came to understand the importance of interreligious dialogue uh, as a result of his Eucharistic devotion. Um, that's one of the points that I argue in the book, that um, the Eucharist 
led him to understand that our ultimate vocation, our calling as Christians, our calling as a human, uh, as a humanity, was uh, to be one, to uh, to be united with each other, um, in and through God. And therefore, it calls us to look at other people in different ways. Pope Benedict XVI, in his wonderful apostolic exhortation, Sacramentum Caritatis, the Sacrament of Love, talks in these same sorts of terms, that the Eucharist should so, should so uh, overwhelm us with a sense of divine love for us as individuals, but also with a sense of how deeply God loves others, that we should um, therefore treat and engage with all others, no matter who they are, with a deep and profound uh, respect, understanding the dignity and value that each one has in God's eyes, regardless of their religious beliefs. And so Merton understood that dialogue was something that the Eucharist was actually calling him to. Now he was not, he was very, very clear about what this meant. This did not mean and erasure of differences or a relativism that said that all religions are basically all the same. What he does say is that we have to begin from a position of affirmation. So if uh, engaging in dialogue, this is actually helpful in political dialogue, it's helpful in uh, any kind of dialogue, but in particularly in interreligious dialogue, he says we begin from a position of affirmation. So what is it that we can affirm in the other? Right. If we begin from a position of negation, you know, talking about all the ways we're different, then we're just contributing to the fracturing of a humanity, of fallen humanity. But if we begin from a position of affirmation, then we can see all the ways in which we are one before we get to the places in which we're not. And he says, there's lots that we can't affirm, right? But we have to begin with that affirmation. And he's very clear, he says, and this is almost a direct quote, uh, he says, this does not mean syncretism, indifferentism, or the vapid and careless friendliness that means uh, believing in everything while actually believing in nothing, right? The vapid and careless friendliness. Mm -hmm. So he's not at all interested. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty strong yeah. uh, refutation of, I guess, the ac a lot of the accusations that are made yes. against him. And, and he repeats that over and over in Asia, in the talks that he gave in Asia. Um, he doesn't think, he, he doesn't, he's not oblivious to the very real differences between uh, the religions. But he also thinks that we have to get beyond a sort of us versus them mentality when it comes to dialogue. That we have to also recognize that, um, you know, uh, uh, Buddhist, uh, Zen Buddhist practitioners, uh, Sufi mystics, um, they're having an experience of the transcendent that we can't just immediately reject because they're talking about it in ways that are very similar to the ways we talk about it as Christians. So, you know, he thinks that we can have dialogue on the level of experience. And, um, and so when he has that experience at Polonarua, this is the uh, experience uh, in front of the statues of the Buddha. They're these giant statues of the Buddha. Um, he's having uh, uh, this experience that he's having. It, it clearly is a mystical experience, um, but he and he uses some Buddhist te te terminology to describe it. 
But what he's ultimately describing is a Christian experience of seeing God in and through everything. Um, that somehow the veil was dropped and he was seeing um, the presence of God in and through uh, all things. And um, I think I think those many many people have a difficult time. You know, they're either all or nothing people. And Merton was absolutely opposed to theological and interreligious relativism. At the same time, he was wanting to acknowledge the truth and goodness and beauty and even divinity that's found in other religions. And I think that for some people who have a more sort of black and white approach to things, they just have a very difficult time understanding that perspective. And yet, it's Mer Merton's perspective is the one that has become really the closest to official Catholic teaching when it comes to interreligious dialogue. One of the things that struck me uh, to point out when you're when you're talking about this time period was all of the other reading that Merton was doing. So Merton was not he was a, a wide ranging reader, but even during this time, he was reading. Well, a majority of Christian texts. Yeah. Um, the the readings in Eastern religions was was just really a minority of what he was doing. Of course, he's reading more than any human should be reading. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> at, at any one time, but um, it's not. It, it's clear that his Christian reading was taking most of his time, most of his attention. And if it's not something you're, you don't do that if you're not interested in it, yeah. right? If you're if you're switching teams, um, then you know you're not you're not going to be reading more Aquinas, right? And in his journals and in his letters home, even while he's in Asia, he's making it very clear to them that he uh, has no desire whatsoever to be anything but a monk at Gethsemane. Now. He was thinking the the abbot was hoping that maybe he could become a monk at Gethsemane, you know, canonically associated with Gethsemane, but being maybe a, a hermit in Alaska or something where he couldn't be as bothered as he was getting, you know, here in in Kentucky. But he was never going to sever those ties. Um, and I, one of the things that I showed you up in the Merton Center was his collection of relics that he actually right yeah wanted to uh, talk about that that he carried with him to Asia. They were in a shaving kit. Um, these, uh, yeah, he had, a, he had a great appreciation for relics that you read yes. about, and, and 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 a devotion to these saints. So these Christian saints, uh, almost all except for the relic of Saint Therese, uh, these are all relics of hermits um, that he carried with him uh, to Asia that were part of the effects that came back uh, with his body. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's incredible that that he would just pack those up in the. Yeah, in his shaving kit and head off. You yeah, know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he had the he wanted he he had a lot of relics at the Hermitage, and it's clear that he, I don't know if he would describe it this way, but he would he wanted companions. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. these were his his companions on the journey, right? And uh, again, you're you're not doing that if you don't have a devotion and a tie to them. That's, mm -hmm. Those are easy things to leave back at home. If yes. If you're if you're not if you're not interested, um, I know, and you touch on this in the book. And I don't want to belabor it, but you know there has been some question 
recently about Merton's death? Was it right. was it um, really an accident? Yeah. Uh, you you say in the book you, that there's no reason to think otherwise. So there is a, a, a book that has been written in recent years uh, by a couple of authors that allege that this was a grand conspiracy, um, that Merton was likely assassinated by the CIA, and that uh, all of Merton's friends and the monastery itself has endeavored to cover this up. I read the book. Uh, I did a review of the book on Twitter. I didn't think that it needed a review uh, beyond that, <laughs> um, that they took great exception to. And uh, <laughs> you can look up if you'd like. There's a, a, a very long post by one of the authors on his blog about what kind of a horrible person I am. You're uh, clearly a CIA asset. Yeah. <laughs> but in order to believe now, I d I've, Merton's death was weird. Uh, you know, electrocution by a fan that had a short. I mean, uh, it's all strange. But in order to believe their conspiracy theory, you have to believe the absolute worst of all of Merton's good friends and his abbot, uh, all of the monks at the Abbey of Gethsemane. <laughs> um, you really do have to have an understanding of the world as being so pernicious and evil that uh, it's just frankly unbelievable. So these guys will probably hear this and they'll be further upset and they may end up writing another blog post about me, but um, it is what it is. Uh, you know, they did a lot of work for their book. I'm glad uh, it's an interest. it was an interesting read. I learned some things, but I wasn't ultimately convinced. Well, and there's also an article I saw recently alleging that it was a suicide. Yeah, that's another thing that comes out all the time, and that's even, I think, uh, frankly, I believe the CIA thing more <laughs> than I believe the suicide. Uh, I mean, if I have to choose one or the other, I would choose the CIA. But right. Well, I mean, and you mentioned not in relation to that idea at all, but that, that uh, but in relation to, that, uh, to the, the fact that Merton was, was making plans back home yeah. uh, of things he was going to do, uh, mass and so forth. Um, well, he's talking as well about um, going to Japan and visiting some uh, Japanese uh, Cistercians, but also finally exploring Zen Buddhism uh, and Zen Buddhist monasteries uh, beyond just the reading. You know, mm -hmm. he, had, he was going to go to these places. He was, ex he was excited about it. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it, it certainly seems like he had... Um, you know, sort of these firm plans and the vision for the future of, of what he was going to do. Of course, it'd be interesting to find out what what would have happened there. Yeah. Uh, certainly, but um, in the beginning of your book, early part of your book, you talk about um, Merton's conversation with his fr his friend at the time, Robert Lax. Yeah. And Merton's uh, Lax is challenging him. What are you going to do? And this, of course, before. He's a monk at all, uh, and is con even considering that. He's but he's become Catholic, and he said, "Well, you know, I, basically, I don't want to go to hell." It's essentially mm -hmm. his answer. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I want to avoid mortal sin, and he tells him, "Well, you need to be a saint, right?" Do you think that Merton became a saint? I would, I would be lying if I said that I didn't. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm not choking up. I'm literally <laughs> choking. <clears throat> One second. Uh, 
I would be lying if I said that I didn't call on his intercession sometimes. Uh, whether he's, you know, he's not officially a saint sure. in the Catholic Church, and I don't think he will ever be officially a Catholic saint. Uh, and that's fine with me. Um, but it seems to me that this was uh, a man who, uh, for all of his uh, foibles, um, had really gone extremely far in this life in terms of his relationship uh, with God, um, especially in and through the Eucharist. And as an example, he's somebody that I would love to emulate more thoroughly. So, um, you know, uh, I, I do consider him, you know, uh, one of my, I'll say one of my companions mm -hmm. along, along the way. And I'm not the only one. I mean, if you go to his um, uh, grave at the Abbey of Gethsemane, um, it's consistently one of the only ones that is decorated because people come by, they leave um, letters for him, they leave prayers for him, they leave sobriety tokens, um, various other things. It's clear that uh, other people have a devotion to him, um, which I think is lovely. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate your time. Well, this was fun. I enjoyed the conversation. And uh, the book is Man of Dialogue, Thomas Burton's Catholic Vision. And it's available wherever fine books are sold, I assume. I hope so. Uh, any, any upcoming projects? Anything that you're working on? Well, you mentioned you were listening to Merton Introductions. The thing that I'm working on, so I'm, that's kind of a side project. The main project I'm working on right now is, um, uh, uh, that I've started working on is a biography of a black priest that I write about in the, in the book, uh, a black priest named Father August Thompson, who was um, a priest in Louisiana and uh, really one of Catholicism's most important civil rights leaders, uh, but almost nothing is known about him broadly. And so um, I'm in the process of doing some archival research down in Louisiana and um, yeah, that's my hope anyways, is to write a, to there work on a biography. to do research. Okay. Yeah, uh, Alexandria, Louisiana. It's a nice place. I've been there often. Yeah. So Well, we look forward to hearing more about that project. Thank you. I wish you well on it. Thank you very much for uh, hosting me here at Bellarmine University and invite people to come and see the Burton Center. And uh, maybe they, they can knock on your door and see if you're around. Absolutely. Okay.